I do want to emphasize to the ladies that today, um, or tomorrow is the last day to sign up for the retreat at the end of the month. So please sign up, go to our website for that. And uh, I also invite you back to uh, Rocky Family Night tonight at six o'clock, or that's when the food is served, six o'clock. We're catering fried chicken. We have enough rolls for everyone. We have some mac and cheese, some green beans. So please, we need help with a side, a veggie, or a dessert. Um, So please bring something that will feed about 10 people, but something else very important is that we're eating at six. Um, And please don't bring your side at six and there will be, or there will be chaos and I just can't handle stress in my life right now. So please come with your side at 545. That would be a blessing. Now, the program, we're having a highlight uh, from Jesse Harlan on the Benevolence Ministry, uh, a recap from Emma Moore about her summer internship with Elizabeth Berry, and then Bill Berry will continue our study on relationships in the church. So that's tonight. All right, so I have no personal experience with sheep. So I guess I could step down now. Um, But the authors of the Old and New Testaments, plus the people of Israel whom much of their writings were addressed, had extensive knowledge of sheep, herding, and shepherds. So from reading the Bible, we can safely assume that sheep have a poor sense of direction, lack any uh, protections against predators since they are walking pillows, and they need help in meeting even their most basic needs of water, food, and shelter. So totally deflating any pride that we may have, God calls his people sheep repeatedly. It's no wonder that we need a shepherd. But do not think of our text today from John 10 as a linear narrative. It is a narrative since Jesus is talking, but it doesn't follow a straight line. He tells a story, and then he further explains the components of the story he just told. So for example, the story Jesus tells is in verses one through five. And we know this is a unit because the author John adds a comment in verse six. John calls Jesus' story a figure of speech in verse 6, and according to scholar D.A. Carson, the Greek word is similar to the word parable, or a story Jesus tells in order to teach his audience a certain truth. Obviously, they did not understand what Jesus was putting down. Look at verse 6. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So what follows in verses 7 through 18 is Jesus' explanation of the parable, and he highlights three themes introduced in verses 1 through 5. So verses 7 through 18 are an expansion or an explanation of verses 1 through 5, so we first must understand the parable he tells. So on your listening guide, part A Blank number one, the parable. There are three main characters, a shepherd, sheep, and a stranger called a thief and robber in verse one. 
The sheep are in a pen, and it was common in the first century in that part of the world for several families to keep their sheep in the same enclosure, and they together hire a gatekeeper to guard the one entrance into the pen. So the gatekeeper is a fourth character in the parable, but he only functions to open the gate for the shepherd when he comes. This context, though, sets up the main contrast and the main point. There's a stranger and there's a shepherd. Only one is authorized to be there, and only one is known by the sheep. The stranger is highlighted in verses 1 and 5. Verse 1, truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus, we can pause, makes clear that what follows is authoritative and serious. He who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and robber. Verse 5, a stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Now, if he were authorized to be there, the stranger would enter by the door, but instead he climbs the wall to get in another way. And he's called a thief and a robber, so that we know that he has conceived ill for the sheep, seeking to steal or harm them in some way. But the shepherd is completely opposite. Verses two through four. He who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Now the gatekeeper knows the shepherd, and the sheep know the shepherd, and the shepherd knows the gatekeeper and the sheep. He knows the sheep so intimately that he calls them individually, by name, and the sheep follow him wherever he goes, because they trust him, and they know his voice. But this parable was not understood We can just look at verse six. So I ask, why did Jesus tell this parable? Why sheep? Why does he contrast a thief and a shepherd? The answer is because Jesus knows his Old Testament. Many are the references to sheep and shepherds in the Old Testament, but the most necessary for understanding Jesus' parable is Ezekiel 34. So I invite you to actually turn there because that's how important it is. We're gonna read almost the whole chapter. Verses one through six. And I'll pause for a few comments along the way. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, a reference to the prophet Ezekiel throughout the book, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God. Now, this is serious. Uh, The very words of God through a human mouthpiece reminiscent of Jesus saying, truly, truly, I say to you. He continues, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? And we talked about the sheep needing 
the shepherds to meet all their basic needs, but verse three explains what the shepherds have been doing instead. You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. And what else have they not been doing? Verse four, the weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. Now the shepherd's leadership is so lousy that God considers that the sheep have no shepherds and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to uh, search or seek for them. Now if this were about animals, it would be a tragedy, but it's about people, so it's despicable. Verses 30 and 31. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God with them, and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord God, and you are my sheep, human sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the Lord God. Now, this is the sad story of God's people being oppressed, taken advantage of, and scattered from their God by their own shepherds the national and religious leaders appointed by God to lead his people. Verses seven and eight summarize the situation. And in verses nine through 16, God intervenes to remedy the disaster. Notice the repetition of the singular first person pronoun, I, as we read. If you're one of those people that writes in your Bible, consider circling every I to best see what God will personally do. Verse nine. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in a good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, I will bring back the strayed, I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy." I will feed them in justice. So later in John 10, when Jesus declares, I am the good shepherd, think back to Ezekiel 34 and everything that God will personally do for his people. 
And when Jesus refers to the thief and the robber, think back to Ezekiel 34 and the self-serving wretches appointed to care for the sheep. Jesus told this parable in John 10 because he was thinking of Ezekiel 34. But there are another couple of verses in Ezekiel 34 that make Jesus' identification as the shepherd in John 10 even more compelling. In verse 15, which we read, God promises, I myself will be the shepherd of the sheep. But God clarifies some details about the shepherd in Ezekiel 34, 23 and 24. It says, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. But the shepherd will not be King David. He's been dead for about 400 years. But a descendant of David, God will install to shepherd his people. But not only will he be a human descendant of David, he will be God, since God promised to shepherd his sheep personally. So when Jesus tells this parable, he implies that he's the shepherd of the sheep, the human descendant of David, in whom God has come to fulfill his promises. Dr. Bill Cook, a mentor, writes, just as the religious leaders in Ezekiel's day failed to care for God's people, so the religious leaders in Jesus' day failed to carry out their responsibility for his people. So Jesus calls them thieves, robbers, who climb in the pen to prey on the sheep. And this is most clearly illustrated in how the religious leaders treated the healed blind man in chapter 9. Now notice that chapter 10 begins without a place or time change. So when you're reading a narrative, notice any details about the context because the context will determine the author's intent. The context has not changed since John 9, 1, when it reads, as he passed by, he saw a blind man from birth. Now Jesus was coming from Jerusalem where he journeyed all the way back in John chapter seven for the Feast of Tabernacles. So as he was leaving the feast, Jesus healed a man blind from birth on the Sabbath day, rest in chapter nine, which began a ruthless witch hunt by the religious leaders to determine who the healer was, how he did it, and why he did it on the day of rest. But this culminates in John 9:34. They, the religious leaders answered him, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us and they cast him out. So rather than celebrating the work of God, a blind man gaining his sight, which Pastor Troy pointed out, that had never been done before in Old Testament history, the religious leaders declared his soul to be hopelessly sinful, separated from God, and disallowed him from participating in the religious and political life of the people by expelling him from the synagogue. So the religious leaders discard him, 
but Jesus pursues them in to close out chapter nine. So Jesus is the shepherd, and the religious leaders are the wicked thieves and robbers in the parable. So further cementing the connection of John 1, or John 10, 1 through 21 to chapter 9 is how our passage ends. So verse 19 through 21 of chapter 10. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them says, he is a demon and he's insane, why listen to him? But others said, these are not the words of the one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Jesus had just opened the eyes of the blind man, but he was treated shamefully and removed from the synagogue. So Jesus told the parable and the explanation to follow as a commentary on the Jewish religious leadership. Now I have spent much time explaining the context of our passage, especially by tying it to the events of chapter nine and then the context of Ezekiel 34, as my attempt at helping you read and study the Bible for yourself. Consistent and prayerful study over time is of great gain to you, including the Old Testament. Knowledge of the old will help you understand and apply the new. So I commend faithful reading all the Bible to you. Now part B, the explanation. Your next blank. So Jesus explains three themes from his parable. And the first one is Jesus is the door of the sheep. So from this declaration, we can infer that this passage is not a straight line story. Uh, because Jesus is now calling himself something that he did not refer to himself as before. Instead, Jesus tells a story, and now he's explaining the story by highlighting themes and metaphors already introduced in the story. So Jesus refers to himself as the door, which he was not the door in the parable. So in verses seven through 10, notice that Jesus changes the subject in every phrase to make the contrast clear to his listeners. Verse seven is about Jesus. Verse eight is about all who came before me, the thieves and robbers, the religious leaders of the Jewish people. Verse nine switches back to focus on Jesus. The first half of verse 10 is about the thief and the second half of verse 10 is back to Jesus. So it goes back and forth. Now let's read these verses, verses, and as we read, notice the effect that these two subjects have on the sheep, which are human beings. So we ask, how do they use their influence? Verse seven, so Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. So the effect on the sheep is positive, because a door symbolizes security. Verse eight, all who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. Now that's a negative effect, since they are thieves and robbers, and with that title, we can imagine what they will do to the sheep. So the sheep do not listen to them. 
Verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. That's positive. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Now that is resoundingly negative. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now that's resoundingly positive. So this is the third of seven I am statements in the gospel which reveal Jesus's identity and the salvation available in him. So by saying I am the door, Jesus is being exclusive. He's the only way for the sheep to be saved from their sins. He's the door, the only way in. And you enter by him through trusting in him to forgive your sins. So verse 10b clarifies the salvation that he offers. He says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So may this comfort the sheep. Jesus came to give you life, abundant, full, satisfied life. Life in the pasture of God's protection is fun and free not dull drudgery. The Christian life, though, is wrongly depicted in all forms of media. Generally, it goes something like this. The Christian life is defined by regulations designed to rob a person of the joy found in the pleasures of life. And then this restrictive pressure builds up until the Christian goes off the rails into the accepted and celebrated practices of the age. Now, God's commands don't exclude you from pleasure, but protect you from all the things that will rob you of pleasure. Are you living the abundant life now? Maybe we don't understand God's commands rightly. The enclosure around the sheep is designed not to deprive the sheep of pleasure and joy but to protect the sheep from all pleasure and joy killers in the world. So your next blank. The door opens to abundant life for his people. So in contrast, the religious leaders' motives are clear. In verse 10a, the thief comes only to steal kill, and destroy. So those appointed to lead the people to God actually serve Satan since their motives are the same. 1 Peter 5.8 reads, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now second, Jesus is the good shepherd of the sheep. So Jesus again takes up the shepherd image from his opening parable, and his contrasts continue. Jesus is the subject of verse 11, and his influence has a positive effect for the sheep. But he contrasts himself with another figure in verses 12 and 13 called the hired hand. Now, this is not the thief or the robber, but a new character not represented in the parable of verses 1 through 5. 
So I agree with the commentary I studied by D.A. Carson. The hired hand is a character that has no particular representation in Jesus' mind. But he is introduced here in Jesus' explanation to accentuate the contrast with the good shepherd. So let's read these verses and contrast the actions of the shepherd and the hired hand. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. So their actions are sacrifice versus abandonment. So that's what separates the good shepherd from the hired hand. When danger arises, in this case, when the wolf comes to prey on the sheep, the shepherd will risk his own life to defend the sheep, but the hired hand will not. It's not as if the hired hand is a wicked person like the thieves and the robbers. Just, he's more committed to his own well-being than to that of the sheep. But again, he's hired and does not own the sheep. So the opposite is true about Jesus. The trait that qualifies him to refer to himself as good shepherd is in verse 11. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This sacrificial love is repeated again and again. Verse 15, verse 17, verse 18 twice. His job is manly, tiring, and sometimes dangerous. And in those moments when the sheep are in danger, it's revealed that his job is more than a job. The sheep are worth his life. So it's in this verse that we find the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. Now, you don't have to know those words and you don't have to spell them correctly to believe them in your heart. It simply means this in verse 11. The good shepherd, Jesus, lays down his life for, on behalf of, to benefit the sheep, his people. The shepherd dies so that the sheep live. Jesus is cursed so that his people are blessed. Jesus is predicting here what he will endure on the cross. Your next blank. The good shepherd is defined by sacrificial love for his people. Now, knowing I'm the youngest, newest, least experienced, and least sanctified elder, I exhort my brothers, my fellow elders. Let's love the sheep. That is our Lord's command to us and the example set for us. The sheep are precious to Jesus. He owns them and he died to bring them into his flock. So let's shepherd them lovingly. Now, Erica bought me this watch back when I was first hired in ministry. And engraved on the back is a gentle reminder. 1 Peter 5, 1 through 5. Brothers, this is our task and calling. Verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, 
And we must stop and consider all the love that is packed into the word shepherd. Because to Jesus, this verb extends all the way to personal sacrifice and death. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Brothers, we must shepherd in view of and in service to the chief shepherd. It's to him we will give an account for our treatment of the sheep. And it's from him we will receive our reward. So to the brothers, I say, let's shepherd in love. In thinking of our shepherd, let's prioritize the needs of the sheep in our care. And to future elders, for I know there are more among us who God is now or will call to the task because we have been praying for such men, Look to the Lord Jesus, especially to his sacrificial love. Consider, do I love my fellow sheep? There are many considerations to pray through here in John 10 and from these verses in 1 Peter 5, but you must love the Lord and you must love his people more than you love yourself. That is the place to begin. But why are the elders in this church only men? And why does the New Testament allow only men to serve as elders? Compare the hostility of a sheep pen, fierce wolves, thieves and robbers seeking to prey on the defenseless sheep to the hostile world that Christianity was born. Fierce, false teachers seeking to prey on people, plus persecutions from government and religious entities against this new religion that challenged many economic and religious norms. And consider what Rebecca McLaughlin writes in her book, The Secular Creed. We easily forget this in a world of Western comforts. But in the early church and in much of the church today, leading a church means risking your life. And it would be incredibly unloving for Jesus to put those he created physically weaker in the first line of defense when the attackers come. So instead, the shepherds may die, but the treasure remains, the sheep. This is another expression of Jesus' great love for his people. For fathers and husbands, there is much to consider. You have been appointed the leaders of your families and your marriages. Shepherd them. And that begins with a basic yet profound question. Who am I in this for? When I talk this way or when I use that tone or when I make this decision or when I make that decision in that way, whose needs am I considering? Am I thinking more about myself or about my wife and my family? 
So Rebecca McLaughlin continues, if we listen to Jesus, she writes, leadership in the church, and I add in the family and in marriage, leadership isn't about power and privilege. It's about service and sacrifice. So if you're a husband, a father, or an elder in the church, you're in an influential position. But you best make sure that you use that influence to sacrificially serve. More influence, more responsibility, stricter judgment. The chief shepherd cares very much about the sheep he has put under your care. So you must sacrificially serve them. The final theme introduced in the parable and expanded upon is number three. The good shepherd and his sheep intimately know one another. So this is the fourth I am statement in the gospel in verses 11 and 14. But in these verses, Jesus' declaration is tied to the relationship he has with the sheep. Notice the verb know repeated in verses 14 and 15. Four times. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Let's go back. I know my own and my own know me. The shepherd knows the sheep and the sheep knows the shepherd. There's closeness, intimacy, trust, But notice the foundation for this relationship in the very next phrase. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. The sheep and the shepherd have a relationship founded upon and mirroring the close relationship between the Father and the Son already established. And now the mechanism by which the sheep and the shepherd came to that close relationship and I lay down my life for the sheep. As intimately as the shepherd and the father know one another, the shepherd and the sheep know one another because he laid down his life on their behalf. That requires a little bit more contemplation on our part. As intimately as the shepherd and father know one another, the shepherd and sheep know one another because he laid down his life on their behalf. We will address this oneness theme again next week because, let's be real, I need more time to study. Now, verse 16, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Jesus also knows that he has more sheep not currently in the fold. And here Jesus expands upon the metaphor from the the parable. The fold, the sheep pen, is Judaism. And now Jesus stands at the door and looks out at the outlying hills, knowing that more sheep are out there. These are Gentiles, those who historically have no knowledge of God and are far from him. But look what he says, I must 
I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. Jesus will go, he will find them, he will call them to follow him, and they will come because his sheep, even Gentiles, will listen to his voice because they're his. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Jesus will bring all these unrelated sheep together as one, with the shepherd and the flock also being one, just as he and the Father are one. How are you involved in the Lord's mission of reaching more sheep? Are you involved in the discipleship ministries of the church? Or I could ask it in this way, are you involved in the life of the church? Are you an active, unifying presence? I believe the Lord has a vision for each of us to be involved with other sheep in the pen, seeking our mutual growth in Jesus in order to best tell our neighbors and the next generation about the Good Shepherd. Many of you um, are participants by serving, but maybe some of you are just sitting on your behinds enjoying the view. Verses 17 and 18. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Now that's deep, but notice two things. First, the Father's love for Jesus at the beginning of verse 17 is linked to Jesus' obedience to the charge he received from the Father at the end of verse 18. So the beginning of 17 and the end of 18 are connected, and the charge from the Father is in the middle. Jesus laying down his life on behalf of the sheep, and Jesus taking his life up again. The Son is totally dedicated to his Father's will. Second, notice that just as Jesus predicts his death, he also predicts his resurrection. Jesus knows the future and what he will do. He will lay down his life for the sheep. Jesus has the authority to do so, but also the desire because he loves the sheep. He lays it down to take it back up again. Jesus has the authority and the ability to rise from the dead. So your last blank, the good shepherd lives dies and rises to save and unify his people. I chose verses 10 and 11 as our key verses today and we'll close this way. These verses, like the whole passage, is written from the perspective of the shepherd talking to the sheep. Verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now we can't talk about the sheep and the shepherd without Psalm 23. It expands on this abundant life that the good shepherd gives to the sheep, but it's written from the opposite perspective, from one of the sheep talking back to the shepherd. And it goes this way, the Lord is my shepherd, 
I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for describing yourself as the good shepherd who care very much for your people. Thank you very much for your great and unending sacrificial love for your people, your commitment to seek and to save the lost, those who have wandered far from you. And yes, that is us, all of us. We've gone astray because of our great many sins and we did not love you, but you came for us because you loved us, you died for us, and you brought us back and you're leading us now to the pasture and we will be in your house forever. Nothing that I contributed to that except for my own sin. Thank you for your grace your love, and I pray, Lord, that you would lead more people and help us to participate more so in your mission to find those who are lost, because we know they will come, for you say that they are yours. Lord, I pray that we would participate with you. May we have a heart for you. May we have this sacrificial heart, Lord. And for those of us who are husbands, Fathers, elders, we pray, Lord, please humble us and help us to love just as you love, I pray. We need uh, much help in Jesus' name. Amen.